1: or instant pot short ribs braised in wine. All simple and delicious. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Do you ever feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of snacks and meals? We get it. That's why we're excited to share home threads the ultimate solution for creating a stylish and functional family space.
0: At HomeThreads.com,
1: Mm-hmm. It's also no secret that I'm a minimalist who also loves investing in a handful of small luxe things that will last and service for a long time, especially for my home. And we both love a good deal, which is why we've both become obsessed with Quince, a one-stop shop for curated luxury goods shipped direct from the world's best specialty factories. Quince partners with factories that produce well-known luxury brands and that demonstrate a commitment to high production standards, fair wages, safety, and sustainability. They also focus on essential products with low design costs. Think cashmere crews, super soft fleece pants and the down comforters and hotel quality sheets that I'm stocking up on for the new house. Yay, new house. I'm so into those
0: cashmere crews though cuz back to some clothing. <laughs> and they are only $50. I've also stocked up on even more affordable and chic linen shorts, silk camis, and washable silk PJs for the summer. And all of it ships direct from factories
1: straight to us. No middle person and no upcharge. Altogether, that's how Quince is able to keep prices up to 50 to 80% lower than other brands. Real simple, in-style, fast company, Refinery29, and Fortune all agree with us. Quince is a game changer. And if you give them a try and disagree, Quince will give you a full refund. So treat yourself today. Get free shipping and 365-day free returns at onequince.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y. That's O-N-E-Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash, and this is all lowercase, D-I-J-F-Y, short for Didn't I Just Feed You?
2: You know, I grew up with my Puerto Rican grandmother in the kitchen, and her rice was a, was a dish called asopal, which is a soupy rice dish. That was the childhood dish I had. And then when my grandma passed away early on in life, then I moved into this with my mom with this box rice. Welcome to Didn't I Just Feed You, a
1: podcast about feeding kids. Hi, I'm Megan.
0: And I'm Stacy. Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, don't forget to subscribe right where you're listening. And if you find yourself with an extra 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds, leave us a rating and review too. Those ratings help other busy home cooks discover us.
1: And that's what we like. We like to help. We do like to help, which is why we made a whole episode about how to cook rice before we shared this episode, which is all about rice culture. I mean, there's definitely some talking about how to cook rice specific to types of rice, regions. Um, But there's like a lot to dig into here. We have three guests in an episode. We haven't done that since season one. Uh, Maybe there's a reason for that.
0: (laughs) It is a lot. But, you know, we just felt like we couldn't. We talked about how to cook rice from a very, like, practical American home cook point of view, really thinking about, like, what is most readily available to us. And, you know, we tried to offer different techniques and leave room for different rice realities. (laughs) (laughs) But rice is cooked all over over the world it's a major staple for all of humanity not just you know a handful of cuisines so we just wanted to get some global perspectives This is by no means exhaustive, but we just have, you know, we didn't want it to be too overwhelming. We didn't want to like, you know, get into like six episode series (laughs) and bore you guys. But we really did want to find a way to touch on the fact that rice comes from all over the world. It's cooked differently in different places. It's used differently in different places, really to speak to the fact that the relationship that humans have with rice all over the world is really profound and meaningful and takes all different shapes.
1: So it's very light. It's very light. (laughs) (laughs) It actually kind of is. There are a lot of funny stories. No, there are a lot of funny and personal stories here. So our three guests today are Parisa, Jay Johnson, who you might know as Chef JJ, and Christine Gallery, who has also been a guest about how to cook like a restaurant chef. We're going to hear from each of them individually. First up is Parisa. Parisa, aka
0: at Savage Muse, is an Iranian-American multidisciplinary visual artist, designer, storyteller, and cook. Parisa's focus is on the colorful intersections of ancestral traditions meeting the very modern and often subversive worlds that she inhabits, which is why we love her so much. In 2016, Parisa left her 20-year career in the fashion industry to found both Savage Muse, a radically inclusive design studio, and Savage Taste, a multifaceted, food culture and community building hub she recently launched her own spice blend called persican which is a celebration of cultural fluidity and the marriage of persian and mexican flavors and it is absolutely freaking delicious
1: tell us about your background and how you grew up eating what is rice's place in your personal food history and what are some of your memories around rice so I was born in Tehran,
3: Iran in the early 70s and my family uh, immigrated to the US when I was just 4 years old. And we we chose Arizona of all places to put down roots which you know back then was totally not some place where Persians or like any Middle Easterners immigrated to. And rice played a really important part in the way we ate from the moment we arrived in the US because Back in Iran, rice is almost served with every major meal. You know what I mean? It's such an important part of the way we eat, and especially because my mother comes from northern Iran, which is where the rice fields are. So a lot of the northern Iranian cooking involves some sort of a stewy dish that you then pour on top of rice. Or it involves these beautiful rice dishes, which for folks who are not familiar with Persian cooking, the closest I can describe it to is like an Indian biryani where you've got a beautiful rice dish that has lots of other like chopped up vegetables and meats in it and and seasoning. And I have a funny story to share about what it was like growing up eating rice in Arizona as a Iranian immigrant. So I I grew up in a very, very white uh, neighborhood in Scottsdale, Arizona. And a lot of the uh, folks I grew up with, their families had migrated to Arizona from the Midwest or the East Coast and had brought those culinary traditions with them. I grew up in this like, Persian household where literally every night for dinner, we'd have a giant like mountain of rice, a giant platter of rice that was either there being served with something else or it was the featured dish. But it was always served family style and it was ginormous. And it was completely normal for us to literally make a mountain of rice on our plate <laughs> and then pour stuff on it. And I remember the first time my mom let me actually go to an American kid's house for dinner, which by the way, was like the highlight of my childhood because, you know, we, we like many immigrant families, when you first move to a new country, you're a little like shy and suspicious of other cultures. So my parents were a little concerned about letting me mingle with the locals, but when they finally like relaxed and were like, okay, you can go have dinner at like, Stacy's house or Sherry's house or whatever yeah. I did. And, um, I remember this rice moment. I went to, I don't know, some gal pals house and I was probably in seventh or eighth grade. And first of all, I was not used to the concept of having mom pre make the plates in the kitchen and then bring them out, like <laughs> portioned out for you you know like i was used to family style and so i'm like what is this madness like she's already (laughs) decided what portions i'm eating like i I was already having like food control issues i'm like what is this this is like my liberation how how does she know how much chicken i want or how much anyway so i wasn't used to this pre portioned pre-plated dinner concept um and then number two well, turned out that the average American views uh, a serving of rice to be way smaller than what I'm used to. And so there was like what I would consider like a modest p- handful, a palmful of rice. <laughs> like... As like a side dish next to, my, next to my pork chop, which was very radical for me because growing up in a, a traditional religious household where, where pork was forbidden, having a pork chop was like, what? Also, is this your parents? Is this their nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm going and having pork. I'm such an infidel. Yes. <laughs> so, but I remember the first time I had rice served to me by an American household I actually thought because the portion of rice was so small on my plate that maybe the family was poverty stricken and couldn't afford more rice. And I actually felt really bad for Becky or Sally or whoever I was, despite the fact that there was a giant pork chop on my plate. For me, the indication of the lack of rice meant, oh, they don't have abundance in this household. Um, And so that was a really funny memory is I associated like the amount of rice you get served with how prosperous the family was.
0: Yeah, I'm laughing so hard because I have a similar memory of going to a friend's house. And of all things, it's interesting that they served fish because I don't feel like fish is, I don't know, particularly popular. I was born in this country, but my parents are from Greece, and my grandmother did a lot of the cooking. I went to my grandmother's house after school almost every day of my childhood. And I remember seeing a fish filet, and I was like, there is no head on this fish. This is genius. Like, <laughs> like this is the way, because I thought it was so good. Gross. I mean, my grandfather, I've told this story before in the podcast, my grandfather used to chew the eyeballs. But I was like, what is this magic that is an already cleaned fish filet on my plate? (laughs) So that's so funny. I can totally relate. (laughs) So was most of the rice that you were eating at home steamed? Like, how was it prepared?
3: Yeah. So first of all, we only use basmati rice. Okay, so no short grain rices, no brown rices. It's always been basmati rice that we use. And um, the way Persians cook rice is a bit of a a part. You parboil, like if you want to do it the right way, you parboil your basmati rice in a pot, kind of al dente, the way you would want to serve an al dente pasta. And then you drain it and then you re. You put it back in the pot, but usually you want to create a tadik crust. We call the crunchy crust at the bottom of the pot a tadik. And I did a whole t shirt campaign called Make Tadik Not War because Iranians are so obsessed with their tadik. But the way you prepare it is you, if you want to have a crunchy bottom, you pour a little oil and then you, and a little saffron if you want to be fancy to create a yellow color. And then you reinsert some of that parboiled rice and smash it down to create like a crust. And sometimes you add like yogurt or something to create a binding for it. And then you pour the rest of that parboiled rice into the pot on top of that kind of crust you've created and drizzle some more water on it. And then you put a lid on top and you wrap the lid in like a piece of cotton cloth. And it creates this fantastic system where you're steaming and creating this beautiful, aromatic, fluffy rice. But at the same time, the bottom of the pot has oil and it's sizzling and it's frying the bottom. So you're getting this Combo steaming frying action. Oh, I forgot one thing. You definitely want to put some like oil or butter into the rice to create like more of a of fat binding. But yeah, so when you are ready to serve your rice, whether it's plain rice or you've created again that kind of biryani experience with you know vegetables and like seasonings and stuff in it, when you lift that lid up, this incredible steamy aroma comes out. And then you flip it. You put like a serving platter on top of that open pot and you flip that pot. And when you lift the pot, you have almost like a cake. Oh, it's so beautiful.
0: And actually I, I wanna get back to just everyday preparation, but I've also seen on your feed a lot people playing with beautiful patterns <laughs> on their tadiq. And even just the words fluffy, crispy. It's like
3: my mouth is <laughs> watering. It is. And actually on my Instagram, Savage underscore taste, I have some links to some cooking videos I've done where I show foolproof ways to create tadik. And um, I also have videos where I show you how to get creative and use herbs and slices of different colorful vegetables to create like garden art on your tadik crust and get like super artistic. I think that'd be a really fun thing to do with kids, actually.
1: I see so often and I'm like, I really want to try to make that, but I feel really intimidated. So could you give us just your three best tips about how to make it at home?
3: Absolutely. Number one, you absolutely want to start with a large enough pot and it must be nonstick. Don't even mess with trying to do it like in a Dutch oven or any, any, or <laughs> don't, like, even. don't even, or okay. like a cast iron or anything. Just please don't. Like don't try to be fancy. It's not going to work. It has okay. to be nonstick. And I'm sure there's like less toxic nonstick options out there. Tip number two, in order to get your tadik to not burn, but to still get crunchy, two things, you need to make sure you're putting enough oil at the bottom of the pot. And you want to do this thing where when you first put the oil and that like layer of rice down to start the crunchy tadik, you want to start it on kind of high heat for just like maybe three minutes to get that like sizzling going three to four minutes. And then once you've put all the rest of your rice in and you've drizzled it with water and some oil or butter and you have wrapped the lid in that cloth, then you have to remember to put it on low, almost yeah. like you're simmering. And you just let it like cook on low for at least like an hour. Um, and then that way you don't burn it, but you're gonna get the nice crunch. And then I would say my third um, advice is, try to use a binder in your crunchy crust. like I always put maybe one or two tablespoons of yogurt um, or labneh, something thick, like a thick yogurt that's not very liquidy, and mix it in with the rice before I make the crust because like almost to the con- consistency of like a really dry dough or like a really dry oatmeal, something really like not too wet, because the binding helps again to create like a a successful crust
1: yeah and i bet all the fat and sugar that are in those like yogurts helps with the browning not just the binding that like the browning and the caramelization so that's so so smart does the type of fat that you use matter like is it oil are you using ghee what's the best the best fat to brown in
3: in order to get a browning, you want to use something uh, that has a high point heat. You know, I I've switched to avocado oil, but I know like some people like to use like sunflower or safflower oils. Traditionally, you would do it in ghee, and the, if you do it in ghee, not only are you going to get a beautiful cr- crust, but you're going to have that smell which makes my mouth water. Like ghee, ghee makes me think of grandma's kitchen in Iran. Like that incredible like nutty caramelly smell that mixed with basmati rice which already has its own like nutty aromatic smell the combination is unreal so i would say either use a uh, oil that has a high point like cooking temperature or ghee or a combination if you don't want to get too crazy with the ghee
0: your description of what it's That smell bringing you back to your grandmother's kitchen is such a beautiful thing. With tadiq, you're getting that beautiful crust. You've talked us through how to do it. Are there other ways that you ate? I mean, is a crust always something you want to go for every time you're cooking rice or sometimes you just have steamed basmati rice?
3: Yeah. So I would say trying to achieve a perfect tadik is not something you normally do like as a working mom. To come home after work and try to yes. create that. And by the way, my mom has always been a working mom. My parents have run their own uh, business for the whole time they lived here, so my mom was literally running a business and then coming home and having to create from scratch like a, a beautiful Persian dinner for us every night. And she had some ways to create a quick tadiq. But to answer your question, no, you don't always have to have a tadiq. You know, many times there was just wasn't time for that, and she would create. Just a, a delicious white basmati rice dish that was just kind of steam cooked. Yep. You know, and um, serve it with whatever kind of um, quick, quick turnaround Persian. Um, we don't call it stew in Iran, we call it khoresht it's kind of it's kind of guttural but really the the way I describe it to people again who aren't familiar with Persian food is like imagine the way when you go to an Indian restaurant you have that curry stew that you put on top of like a steamy rice same concept just different flavor profiles different spices and seasonings that are used Persian food is not spicy in the heat sort of spice way at all it's more herbaceous and savory and actually I would say the flavor profile is more like Greek food. In a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to me because I think of Persian food as being, I mean, and this is just, you know, my own like gut feelings about it based on my experiences as a Greek American eating, you know, food throughout New York City. I think of Greek and Turkish food and Persian food all in kind of a realm, existing in a realm together. But I'm hearing a lot of, I'm hearing you say a lot of things that remind me of Indian food and South Asian food as
3: well. You are so right on. I would say the flavor profiles are much more similar to Turkish and Greek, like the actual seasonings used, the yes. actual use of a lot of fresh herbs and a lot of like lemon. And it's more, again, green, verdant, sour, sour with some, yes, but then yes. there's also some dishes that use like cinnamons and cardamoms in the savory dishes. And those actually remind me a little bit of like Moroccan cooking. Yes, totally. The aspect of Persian food that I keep referencing with Indian food is less about the seasonings and the flavor profile and more about the type of cooking where you've got a rice dish that looks like a biryani because it's rice yes, with yeah. a bunch of stuff in it, or it's those stewy things that you a lot of stewy things, just like Indian food. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting thing when you think about the geography and the way each of these countries over the last thousand years have impacted each other. That's right. And how everyone borrows techniques and flavors and uses whatever their land provides as far as you know foods and creates their own version of it.
0: Well, and I think that's a beautiful segue to how you cook today in your kitchen. You told us a little bit about rice, how you grew up, how you experienced it growing up. Now, how are you cooking rice? And I also want to know about how you're seasoning your rice, because in addition to being a tadik expert, at least in my mind, you certainly are. You've also created this spice blend that I just want you to share. We're going to have you back to talk about it more, but I want you to touch on that too, because we're kind of talking about the ingredients, the methods, and then also how we flavor things. And now you live in Southern California. Is that right? Correct. I live in Los Angeles. You live in Los Angeles. A lot of amazing different cultures represented there. Does that influence how you eat rice and how you flavor your food these days?
3: 1,000%. So- just to give you a a visual, um, you know, so first Iranian chick growing up in Arizona, right? So here I am eating Persian food at home, but what is the other um, immigrant culture that's heavily influencing the culinary style of Arizona? Mexico, right? And so- Even when I lived in Arizona, before I moved to New York City to go to fashion design school and like pursue a whole career in fashion for a long time, um, even in Arizona, I started to see things like, oh, this is interesting. There are certain spices and flavors that Mexican and Iranian food have in common. We both use a lot of herbs like cilantro. We both use cumin, both like to use some sort of like a saffrony thing. And of course the Mexican culture has been influenced by the colonization that happened to Mexico by Spaniards. And the Spaniards were very influenced by the Moorish, Arabic, Middle Eastern (laughs) cultures. So- so over the over my own experience with cooking and food over the last like 25 years I'd say I started to connect the dots on how so many cultures are intertwined and the stories of how the seasonings and the spices we associated with certain types of cooking actually have histories that are much more connected than we would ever imagine. So take that, right? And then here I am living in LA for 10 years. And, you know, depending on what neighborhoods I've lived in or hung out in, there's all these vibrant immigrant cultures, right? Like right now I live in the East side in a place called Highland Park, which was, is super, super Mexican American, super Mexican-American. But then you you go to the west side of LA and it's like heavily Iranian. Like there's a ton, and then there's this other place called Glendale that's full of Armenians, many of which come from Iranian culture. Yeah, yeah you know, in the last 10 years, my eyes have been open to this, what I now have started coining as this cultural fluidity that's happening in a place like LA, which happens in other towns as well. Um, but I, it's just so vibrant here where you, you know, you can go eat your, go at it to a taco truck and then go down the block and have like really authentic kebab. And of course there's been a lot of Taco trucks specifically, who've gotten famous because they've started doing cultural, culturally mash-ups fluid mashups, way. right? Yeah. And so this is kind of what's what sparked the idea in me to take my background as a designer and visual artist and storyteller and start creating these spice blends that uh tell a story of the layered lives we all live. And so the first one I've created, I call Persian because it's a combination of Persian and Mexican flavors. And instead of creating the spice blend pre-blended in the bottle, I, I took the time to engineer it so that it actually comes in all the 11 layers of herbs and spices you get. And it creates almost like sand art. It's very artistic. And there's an aspect to it where once, you, once the bottle arrives to your home, you get to be part of the experience of blending it yourself. And so there's a whole interactivity where you open the bottle and there's this Colorful pom- pom inside, and you know Mexican culture has a lot of pom- pom art. yeah, you know, so you you pull the pom- pom out and then you shake it up yourself and it becomes your own experience with this spice blend. But I wanted to create a seasoning, a blend that felt very all purpose that you could use in your kitchen with your kids or if you're single like me by yourself, that hits every flavor point you could ever want to amplify and elevate your everyday cooking. So there's everything from garlic powder and turmeric and things that are just kind of like a nice base to just elevate anything from some soup to a rice dish to your scrambled eggs. But then there's flavors that are very distinct like fenugreek leaves, which is really connected to Persian cooking and um, a very mild chili powder called ancho chile, which is like super mild, but gives you a little bit of hint of that Mexican thing. And then of course, flavors like cumin, sumac. It's very exciting. And yet the, the end result is nothing overpowering. It makes whatever you cook tastes like an ancient grandmother has been sitting over a stove.
0: I love that. That speaks to me so much. And it really is absolutely gorgeous. When
3: you're cooking rice, how do you use it? Two ways. Number one, if you do want to create a tadik crust, When you're mixing your binding with like a little yogurt, I would add that seasoning a couple, like a teaspoon or two in to create this flavorful crust. It almost becomes like its own dish, you know? So that's one way I use it. The other way I use it is, let's say I'm making the Persian version of a biryani. When I'm sauteing those onions and garlic and chopped meats and vegetables, whatever I want to mix with my rice... I'll add it in when I'm doing the saute, like when I'm starting out with the onions or whatever my initial saute is. And I'll add a couple teaspoons there before I add like a little tomato sauce or whatever it is I'm using to create a little bit of a sauciness to the ingredients that I'm going to then mix with the steamed rice to create the biryani. So those are the two ways I use the seasoning to just take everyday rice cooking to another level, you know, and I'm, I'm really curious, uh, Stacey, how, 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 do you use rice in your kitchen?
0: You know, it's so funny because I actually didn't grow up with rice as a staple, even though Greeks definitely do use it. I, you know, there are a couple of things that I remember from when I was young using rice to stuff vegetables
3: was big. Dolmas. Dol- do you yes. call
0: it dolmas too? Right. So, yep, dolmas, wrapping it in grape leaves, stuffing peppers, like that was a very quick everyday meal, you know, where my grandmother would mix ground meat with rice and some tomatoes and stuff it in a pepper, do the same thing with zucchinis. We'd put raw rice in meatball mix and then make meatballs that had rice. And what you would do is you would brown them but then you would steam cook them. Usually, you know, you could either do broth or you could do like an Avgolemono where you whisk the egg and the lemon with the broth. And then the meatballs, as they cook, so does the rice. I, so, you know, those, I don't remember just rice being on the plate as a side. And I don't remember rice being used, you know, as a stew, like the biryani and what you were saying, where rice was the main with things mixed in. It was more of a stuffing for us.
3: Persians also do stuffed grape leaves and stuffed vegetables. That's something that our two cultures very much share as far as a culinary tradition. The seasonings might be slightly different, but it's the exact same concept, which, and that has rice in it too. I totally forgot about that application of rice. And we do, Persians also do have their own like really famous meatballs. And I actually think maybe there is a little bit of rice as a binding in our meatballs as well. You know, and it's funny because as I started cooking for my kids, I really didn't cook
0: rice or just steam it and have it on the side. So my 14-year-old actually says that he doesn't like plain rice. If we do a curry or, you know, I don't know, like a stewy thing like you were talking about, then he likes it. And then the 11-year-old If you serve him plain rice, it doesn't matter. We just had a chickpea curry that I made the other night. And even with that, he goes and he gets rice wine vinegar, and he puts vinegar in his rice. Like, if you give him any type of plain steamed rice, basmati, short grain, anything, he adds vinegar to it.
3: I love that he has already (laughs) such a distinct palate. He
0: sure does. He sure does. Parisa, we're going to absolutely... As soon as we get off this recording, we're going to shoot you an email to get you back because we need to talk more about spices. We love your perspective on it. We're going to definitely link to your product in the show notes for this episode as well so people can get a head start. In fact, let's put out a challenge. Let's make sure that everyone orders Parisa Spice Blend now so that you already have it on hand by the time we have her back and talk about spices at greater length.
3: And you know what, as a thank you for your listeners, I'm going to come up with a special discount code so your listeners can get a oh, discount.
0: Yay! That is awesome. Yeah. Let's Thank you for that. Let's do that. We love having you on. We will talk to you again really soon. Thank you so much for your time and talking to us about race today.
1: My pleasure. Stacy, coming out of the pandemic and right into a cross-country move, I decided that it was time for a new vitamin routine for my kids. We have so much going on. I don't want to stress about whether they're getting everything they need. I just want to know that they are. I get it. With the boys, we have been through so many different vitamin phases. In fact,
0: we stopped taking vitamins right before lockdown. Since I was cooking every single meal, I figured that I could ensure the boys were getting everything they needed. But things have changed around
1: here, too. Wait, tell me more about that.
0: Okay, so listen, everyone who knows us knows that we prioritize food joy, and this year has emphasized that even more. I want the boys to have food autonomy, and that means letting go, not my strength, (laughs) but I want (laughs) to let go while knowing that they are getting what they need
1: nutritionally. And not giving them a vitamin dressed up as candy. There you go. (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) As I was researching vitamins, I couldn't believe how much sugar some of them have. Which is why we're both so excited about our new sponsor, Haya. It's the perfect timing in both of our homes for a zero sugar vitamin. Whoop. The other interesting thing I learned while researching is that most vitamins were formulated to
0: fill the nutritional gaps in kids' diet based on out-of-date nutritional guidelines from the 1980s. That was even longer ago for you than for me. <laughs> it is
1: based on a modern kids' diet. Their vitamins are made with a blend of 12 farm fresh fruits and vegetables, then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals known to help support a healthy immune system, energy levels, brain function, mood, need that, teeth, bones, and more. Also, zero sugar and stale tasty. But honestly, the best part of Hyatt is the convenience. Your vitamins come straight to your door with a pediatrician-recommended schedule. The first month comes with a reusable glass bottle that your kids can personalize with stickers. Then every month thereafter, Hyatt sends a no-plastic refill pouch of fresh vitamins. Good for the planet, no sugar,
0: non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, and everything else you can imagine. I'm sold.
1: More importantly, our kids are sold too. We've worked
0: out an exclusive offer with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Didn't I Just Feed You listeners receive 50% off their first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y or enter the code D-I-J-F-Y at checkout.
1: That's dot hcom slash d-i-j-f-y and get your kids the full body nourishment that they need to grow into healthy adults full discount applied at checkout megan guess what i'm cooking that my friend is the unmistakable sound of sizzling bacon so you know i need to know more about what's happening in your kitchen right now you're right
0: it's bacon from my latest moink box Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pasture pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door
1: and straight into my pan. I love Moink, too. We've both talked on the show about how we choose eating less meat to ensure it's quality meat, and Moink makes it so easy. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Quality meat at fair prices shipped right to you. It doesn't get any easier. And because Moink sources from family farms, getting your meat
0: from Moink means that you're also helping those farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture.
1: You know what I'm going to say next, right, Billis? We love quality and convenience, but taste is the bottom line. And with Moink, you get the highest quality meat you've ever tasted. Word on the
0: street is that Moink was featured on Shark Tank and host Kevin O'Leary said that Moink's bacon was the best
1: he's ever tasted. Clearly, I concur. Sign up at moinkbox.com D-I-J-F-Y to get one year's worth of free bacon and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel anytime. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for
0: a limited time only at moink D-I-J-F-Y. Short for Didn't I Just Feed You.
1: Jay Johnson is a James Beard award-winning chef best known for his barrier-breaking cuisine connecting the foodways of West Africa and Asia to the Americas and also his quick casual rice bowl shop in Harlem, New York field trip. Chef JJ's signature style of combining culturally relevant ingredients with his classically trained cooking and global point of view was inspired by the Caribbean taste he grew up with combined with inspiration from his travels. Chef JJ published his award-winning first cookbook in spring 2018. It's called Between Harlem and Heaven, Afro-Asian American Cooking for Big Nights, Week Nights, and Every Day. He serves on the James Beard Impact Program Advisory Committee and sits on the junior board of Food Bank of New York City, taking action to end hunger.
0: All right, chef. You have a restaurant called Field Trip in New York City, and your tagline is Rice is Culture, which we absolutely love. I want to talk a little bit about that, and why is rice so important? Can you share the significance of how and why it's become a staple in so many cuisines?
2: Well, yeah, Field Trip is an amazing place. It's anchored on rice. Uh, we consider considered a rice bowl shop. Our slogan is Rice is Culture. And the way I came up with that slogan was, you know, I've I've been very fortunate to cook in Ghana, Singapore, Israel, India, and rice in those places are are at the center of the table. It is the culture, right? People get excited when when the rice hits the table. They don't really care about the protein. They're like, oh my God, look at the rice. Look at the grains. What's in it? Why does it smell delicious? And people really get, get geeked out about it. And I said to myself was, there's this culture that is really missing from the United States to define the rice culture. And when I did research, I realized that we all grown up with a rice grain or a rice dish that defines our culture. That's why rice is culture. In the U.S, rice farming was dictated on one culture or on a, on a worse time West African slaves. And when West African slaves were free, they didn't want to grow rice anymore. They didn't they didn't want to even look at it because they saw how much money everybody else made from it. They knew that nobody was going to grant them the land. Yeah. And the rice culture of the United States got lost.
0: So interesting. When everybody
2: else tried to start growing rice, they didn't really know how to grow rice. Why we had the era of like gold rice that was dyed gold and was giving people these diseases. Or the the par-boiled era because it was like we figured out how to mass produce it. So let's like parboil it and hold it. And so people can just have it all the time because it's needed Um, or let's enrich it or pull everything out because it can last on the shelf long. So the culture of, of ricing in the U S was, was lost because it was based on, uh, on people that they they knew how to grow rice, right? Rice was more lucrative uh, or just as lucrative as cotton.
1: It's crazy. Yeah. I did not know that. But I think there's also something really interesting that you're hitting on here, which is that as enslaved people stopped growing rice and moved into like manufacturing roles and all that stuff. There's also some oral education that's lost in that. Like when people stopped cooking rice, they stopped teaching their children how to cook rice. And actually what we find now, like working in the world of food media and SEOs that people are. Googling on the daily, like, how do I cook this type of rice at home, which we think of as like such a basic thing. But actually, there's a big knowledge gap when you're presented with all the options of rice that are in the grocery store and you're like, well, I don't, which one do I choose? Which one is better for me health wise? And if I buy Arborio, can I cook? Can I only
2: make risotto with it? Yes. But I think if we go back in time, like, I think we're probably all around the same age. Our parents, our mothers were working mothers, right? And on the commercial was like 20 minute rice, 15 minute rice, right? And that's what they got used to cooking, right? And then that rice just didn't, never came out like how your grandma made rice. You were like, well, what's this? Why is it mushy? Why is it hard? And that became the right, that's the rice culture of America, 15 minute box rice.
0: Yeah. And all those rice mixes too. You know what I mean? Like rice aroni became a thing and all these like, They'll flavor it for you. You just add some protein and you get this like meal in a box.
2: rice is good, though. Like the flavor of it is like really good. I'm not going to lie on here. Listen,
0: chef, I wrote a letter when they discontinued the stroganoff flavor. I think I was like a teen or something. I was like, oh, no, hell no. You guys can't take that away from me. (laughs) That was because my mom was a working single mom and I ate that
1: like at least once a week <laughs> it is such a nostalgia hit for me where i'm like yes those flavors are my childhood for better or worse the like prepared meals so Gigi, can you talk a little bit about your personal like how rice was presented on your table growing up was it rice was it instant rice
2: so early on in my life you know i, I grew up with my puerto rican grandmother in the kitchen and her rice was a was a dish called asopao, which is a soupy rice dish, very similar to congee per se. And she would drink it out of a coffee cup in the morning. And I love that dish to 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 date. Um, I'm always trying to figure out how to put it on field trips menu. Um, but asopao, we would have chicken asopao, seafood asopao, a breakfast style asopao. It was just that was the childhood dish I had. We called it soupy rice. I used to call it Dow. That's a soupy rice. And then when my grandma passed away early on in life, then I moved into this with my mom with this box rice. And then she would make, she would try to make her asopal. Um, but then she would call it her chicken and rice. And she had two versions of it. One had a tons of oregano and lemon juice that I can still remember. The other one was like onion and ketchupy to bring, like, some color with the chicken. And it was all cooked in that one pot. Yeah. It was, like, my, me and my mom always had beef when we talk about food because she was not, like, the best cook, right? <laughs>
0: um, we can relate. The two of us can relate. We've talked about that here. We can't go that deep because our moms listen to
2: the 100% of my mom will stuff. listen to this. Um, and my dad would tell me, you know, stop. Like, your mom works. We all work here. Like, yes, you got food on the work. table. Be thankful. They were
1: 100% doing the very best they could with what they had. All right. So now let's talk about just (laughs) a pot of
0: fluffy, simple rice. What do people need to know about how to cook rice properly? Do you have any tricks that you can share since you're a master of rice cooking?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest thing I tell people when they're cooking rice is you've been cooking rice in the wrong pot. You know you you have to think about rice it doubles in size, right? When it doubles in size, I mean the grain actually grows, it doesn't like multiply, and you need the rice to expand. And if you can't if the rice can't expand, then you get mushy rice and undercooked rice in the same pot, right? The top is undercooked, the bottom's overcooked. So, you need that rice to expand in the pot. You need to use the finger trick where you put your finger on top of the rice and bring the liquid to the to the top, to your first knuckle there. You need to put a yes. cover on the top and cook it at low to medium heat. You need not to stir the rice because you do want the rice to stick to the bottom of the pan. That just means you know how to really cook rice properly. So those are the things that I tell people, but the first step is like is, is not washing the rice, is not any of that. It is making sure you have the, that you have the pot, the right pot size.
1: Listen, the the rice rinsing thing is very controversial. (laughs) Food writers, including both Stacey and I, have said that you have to in the past. And we're really like coming around to this idea that that you don't have to unless it's like you're making sushi rice or you want to soak basmati rice. So... Can you say a little bit more about why you feel like you don't need to worry about rinsing the rice? And then can we talk about what kind of pots you're using at field trip to cook rice? Because I imagine you guys are cooking a lot of rice.
2: So I'm not saying like you don't need to rinse the rice. I'm just saying like, don't get so caught up on rinsing rice. You're, you, we're trying to get you to cook really good, fluffy. The rice, should you should see individual grains of rice like pearl, right? That's what I want to get you to now. Listen. You can wash the rice to the water's clear, right? That's what anybody's grandma or auntie will tell them to do. And yes. we won't argue with them because they will come for you.
1: <laughs>
2: you know that's right. Yeah. We're not going to do that. But remember, when you... And, and I, I don't know. I, I always try to not use the word like starch in rice because rice doesn't have starch, like in starch. And a lot of people get confused with that. But that preservative that you're washing off is taking the glue, that, that starchiness off the rice, right? So every time you wash it, regardless if it's sticky rice, sushi rice, or just a long grain rice, you are removing some layer of starch off the rice. So you, your rice might not stick together as much the more and the more you wash it or the more and the more you soak it.
1: Right. It's not an important step, but it is a step you can use. And it's not a big deal if you do it or you don't do it. What's more important is the cooking method to really get fluffy, delicious rice.
2: The two things is don't put too much rice in your pot so that it can grow. Right. I watch people like have this small little like sauce pot, pour it up halfway, pour the water in it and then be like, why my rice is not cooked right? It's like, well, you put like four cups of rice in a pot that can only hold two cups of rice. Like, what are you
1: doing? I'm laughing because I've definitely watched my husband do this. And it's like, let me just, can I just help you? So is a better pot rather than like a small, maybe tall and skinny stock pot, which I think for some reason people think is a good rice pot. Is it better to use like, a wide and deep skillet that has a lid. What's kind of like, if you could make a pot size recommendation.
2: I you think uh, you're about to make me go in my kitchen. Like a wide saucy, like a sauce pot is good. And I know that's not a good yeah. descriptor for like home cooks, but like a 12 quart pot, Yeah, six quart, six quart to 12 quart pot. That's a little wider so that the, the steam can kind of move out outward. And in any pot you have, you shouldn't be putting more than two cups of rice in that pot, unless you are making like biryani or some type of soupy rice, kanji, right? And you already know how to make that, or you're using a stock pot to cook that rice in. Um, But I recommend two cups of rice is plenty of rice to feed a family of four to six. And then your liquid choice can be your vegetable stock, bone broth, water. Uh, and And the number one thing I will tell you after the size of the pot is, don't salt your rice, you salt rice at the end. You don't salt the pot of rice. It takes the rice longer to cook. And what about adding fat? Yeah, one hundred percent. You can throw some ghee duck fat, butter, toast your rice, and you'll smell that like kind of popcornish e flavor. You'll smell that, and then you can add your broth into there. Uh, And still kind of use that finger trick. Or if you don't, if you're uncomfortable with the finger trick, I always say it's not two to one, it's like one and a half liquid to one. And then, and then you go from there.
0: At home, what kind of rice should people have in their pantry? Like the average home cook feeding a family.
2: So I think you should read your rice labels when you go to the supermarket, the same way you read your chicken label or Mm. your egg labels, Right. And there's some great, I think there's some great farms that are in the supermarket, Depending on where you live, but like Lotus Farm is doing an amazing job uh, supporting rice farmers in Amer- in, in the world um, and putting and, and putting some great rice on the shelf. So if you can get Lotus, that's great. Um, Lumber, Lumberberg.
1: I think it's Lund- Lundberg.
2: They have some great rice varieties. I don't believe in buying like basmati made in California or basmati made in Mississippi. I believe basmati should be bought from India. It should be treated like champagne because that's where basmati's known how to grow the proper terroir and stuff. So like a California long grain uh is great. I think brown rice should be bought from Texas. Like I can get really geeky in these areas.
1: We <laughs> love this. Yes. Yeah. Also, I just recently learned that wild rice is the only, which is not technically a rice, is the only native rice to the America, like to North America. And that is one where you can like find it grown in Minnesota and Idaho. And then also Calrose rice, which is really interesting because that's like a medium grain white rice that's grown in California and is now like 85% of California's rice production. And people are fanatical about that. But I'd love... All of your recommendations.
2: Calrose rice is really a beautiful rice. They do a great job. You know, I've talked to a lot of rice farmers around the country or even the world. People reach out to me all the time to want to put their rice on field trip's menu. Or just like, hey, JJ, thank you for buying freshly milled rice. I believe that's it's going to help the future that you should be able to walk in the supermarket and get freshly milled rice in the refrigeration or frozen section. That's my goal. That's a big play for field trip. Is that? Hopefully one day you can walk in a field trip or a supermarket and get bagged up rice uh, that might be called rice's culture, but it's refrigerated on the shelf. Uh, and I think that's the future of how people should eat rice, the vitamins, and also help the ecosystem. And, and that, that's, that's my main goal, not just impacting you know, brown and black communities with better eating, but also just bringing awareness to the rice farming culture.
0: Okay, I want to go back to this idea of what we should have in our pantries. So we're talking about, you know, if you can and that's available to you, getting basmati rice from the source. Let's say that you can't. It's not affordable. What do you think that uh, having a medium grain rice in your pantry is pretty all-purpose? Do you think that you should also have a sushi rice in your pantry?
2: Is that important? I think you should have jasmine rice. as like your everyday rice. Yeah. Right? That that's your everyday rice I think you should have basmati some form of it. you should definitely have a short grain. you should have all those you should have each one in your in your pantry utilized very differently uh but if you're looking for an everyday rice, I think jasmine a short to long grain rice is the best is the best route to go. You can utilize that in in i think any recipe or every recipe. I think when you get to the short grain I think you can utilize it in a lot of great ways uh and it allows you to be a little chefy uh at times. And then I think if you're trying to elevate your rice pantry, you should have black rice in your pantry if it's forbidden black rice or some type of black rice in your pantry.
1: Yeah. And the nice thing about black rice is it is stunning. It's super flavorful. And it's a little less expensive than trying to buy wild rice and cook and eat a ton of that and has like all the health benefits, too. And I just want to follow up and say that short grain rice is really great because it's, like, the rice that you can use to make, like, seasoned sushi rice if you want to make sushi at home. It's used in, like, a lot of sticky rice applications. So it's one of my favorites. I would also say arborio is, like, a great rice to have on hand if you're feeding a family because I think that people think— Risotto is really complex and like something that you have to take an hour to stand over the stove. And it's just not like that at all. And it's a really easy way to like use up bits and bobs in your pantry. But now I want to try Asopao because that seems like right up my whole family's alley. Okay, we're going to really put some pressure on Chef JJ. You have to tell us your top five favorite rice dishes. It's like choosing favorite children.
2: Top five favorite rice dishes?
1: Yeah. Woo.
2: Woo. Okay. I'm so I, I. I only have two children and they're twins. So they're or three children because my dog. Last night I had a roast congules which was delicious. So one. That's one of my favorite. Uh, Asopao number two. Um, loff number three. Woo number four. Oh, st- so good. Sticky rice. Coconut sticky rice.
0: Oh, it's one of my
1: favorites.
2: Sweet and savory, like
1: both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't have to
2: choose a way. Number five. Oh, my goodness. I think Cuban, white Cuban rice and black beans.
1: Delicious.
2: Delicious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. This was so fun and informative.
2: Thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys on the other side.
1: And we're
0: so excited to have Christine Gallery back again. Christine lives in San Francisco and grew up eating Chinese food at her grandmother's table before she got her culinary degree from Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. Besides being the food editor-at-large at at Kitchen, she dabbles in all things food-related, including recipe testing, food styling, and her latest project, Mr. Jews in
1: Chinatown Cookbook. I would really love, Christine, to hear from you about why rice is such a significant part of Chinese cuisine.
4: So every dinner, you know, there's rice. It's non-negotiable. Rice is grown in the south of China. It's not grown much in the north of China, I think, due to the climate. But it's one of those foods that, you know, it stores indefinitely. You can kind of keep it forever. It's really a filling food source, too. So, you know, if we had a Chinese meal If you start with rice as the base, you just need fewer dishes on the table, right? Because you're filling your belly mainly with rice. And it's one of the first foods you give to kids because it's really easy to digest. But also rice is key because it can be turned into so many different things. So, you know, you can simmer it with water or broth and turn it into porridge or jook and kind of a rice soup in a certain way. Cooked rice, you know, that glutinous rice is then pounded into a paste and turned into rice cakes, kind of almost like a mochi-like texture. Mm, It's my favorite. Yeah. And noodles, you know, there are so many amazing rice noodles out there where you just cook rice and you, you know, make it into a paste and you dry it. And then again, you have this kind of very, not very perishable thing that you can kind of keep in your pantry. I also feel it's it's just a very neutral flavor. So you can, you know, Chinese don't cook rice with salt. You know, it's really interesting when I see recipes that call for rice with salt. And I'm always always like, no, (laughs) you know, you, you get salty flavors from the rest of the food you're eating it with. And that's just a preference, right? But it's kind of this like blank base that then you add to with your other dishes. And so I think in Chinese cuisine, where you have lots of little dishes on the table, rice is kind of the unifier and it kind of cleanses your palate between all of those different bites that you take throughout the meal. So I think those are kind of the main reasons why it's such a big part of of Chinese food.
0: Is fried rice Chinese American in origin?
4: No, not at all. Not at all. Um, I think it's Just a smart way to use up leftovers, to be honest. And that's
0: what I was going to (laughs) ask next, because that isn't a primary preparation of rice. In some other cultures, rice is cooked as part of a dish and flavored. Some places, you know, make yellow rice and flavor it with chilies or, you know, lemon. There's all different ways of doing it. In Chinese cuisine, is rice almost exclusively cooked plain to be this unifier, as you described it?
4: I mean, I think in home cooking it is, but rice is also, it is also cooked with other things. So it's sometimes cooked in a clay pot and they um, we put a lot of cured meats on top of like mm. Chinese sausage mm-hmm. or, you know, cured pork. And then the fats from those kind of leach out into the rice as it's steaming. And then the bottom gets crispy like a tadig. And so you drizzle this like sweet soy sauce over the top and then mix it all up. And so like that's like it's way beyond just plain rice. Um, And in dim sum, we'll take that same kind of glutinous rice and mix it with some meats and then wrap it in a bamboo leaf and steam that. And it absorbs that flavor. Yes, yes. From um, sorry, lotus leaves. Um, they, we also wrap rice in bamboo leaves too. Um, and so you know, there are a lot of instances where we cook rice with other things. But I'd say most of the time, it's it's just eaten plain. And the clay
0: pot reminds me of. Korean food. I never actually realized that Chinese also will cook rice in a clay pot with meats and get really crispy on yeah, the bottom as well. Yeah. So
1: good. Christine, I want to know what's your favorite way to eat rice? And then as a follow-up question, because you are such a pro cook, like what are your tips for cooking rice perfectly? And what does perfect rice mean to you? I think it's a little different for everyone.
4: Yeah. You know, We mainly eat jasmine rice at home. I usually buy um, a Thai brand. I think it's like Three Sisters or Three Ladies, something like that on the package. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's just a really nice, perfumed, it's a good all purpose rice. At home, we do, you know, we have sushi rice occasionally, sometimes glutinous rice. And, you know, It's funny that my non-Chinese husband actually inherited one of those Japanese rice cookers (laughs) over like, you know, 10, 12 years ago from someone and we still have it to this day. And I love it because I throw rice in. Um, I use the little cup that comes with a rice cooker. It's a little smaller than like a standard one cup measure. It's like two thirds of a cup, but there's all these markings on the side of the pot. And so you don't need to measure the water. You just add enough water to get up to a certain line. And then you're set. Um, And so it's one of those like one and done. It keeps the rice warm. I can even turn it on in the morning and it'll be ready. You know, it'll be sitting there until dinner, but it's like perfectly cooked. I like my rice very like light and fluffy. And my dirty little secret is that I don't wash my rice before (laughs) I cook it.
1: literally your that little secret that is crazy <laughs> uh right because we've had we have that drilled into our head that drilled. you like have to yeah. um but honestly i don't either and do you yay. know what else? Also- <laughs> yay and um the other thing i think is funny is that stacy has a japanese rice cooker and she has also said it's like one of her holy grail she'll never ever get rid of it she loves it pieces of kitchen equipment.
0: But I think that being able to not rinse the rice might have to do with the fact that you use that fancy-ish rice cooker, don't you think? I have to admit something. I've been called out for being bad at cooking rice. So it's... I feel like professional cooks will often reveal these like dirty little secrets like I don't make great scrambled eggs and it's usually like something I I do personally Stacy makes good scrambled eggs but like that's something I've heard people say <laughs> you know that there are these things that people assume we've mastered that are actually much trickier than a home cook might think to do well or up to a standard that we've been taught and for me, that thing is rice. And I kind of assumed that when I'm making rice in a pot or I'm not really leaning heavily on my Japanese rice cooker to do the heavy lifting for me, that my problem was that I wasn't rinsing my rice enough. Hmm. I always find it's sticky-ish, or like it clumps more. I don't know.
4: You know, rice is it is really hard to cook on the stovetop, and I think that's why I tend to avoid it if I have my rice cooker because it's about the ratio of water to your rice, but it's mainly about controlling the heat. You know, like you need it to be boiling, then you need to cover it, and it has to be at the right simmer to cook through. And then you need to like let it rest. So there's a lot of steps that can be tricky and it's really hard to monitor if the lid's supposed to be on the whole time. It's one of those things that i always feel bad, you know, because they're like, don't, don't check on it. Don't open it up. And yes. I'm like, how, do you, how <laughs> like, do you know? I have to. Yeah. Because yeah. it'll burn on the bottom or it will not cook enough because your heat's actually not high enough. And so when I do cook rice on the stove, I use a standard ratio of one cup rice to one and a quarter cups water for like a regular long or medium grain rice. And, you know, when it's simmering covered, I do want to see like little bubbles coming up. If I don't see little bubbles, the rice doesn't cook all the way through. But if it's like really furiously boiling, then like it's probably going to get a little like scorched on the bottom. So yeah, it is one of those tricky kind of simple dishes.
0: So your tip for cooking rice perfectly is get a
4: rice cooker. Get a rice cooker smartly for you. (laughs) Or like take a recipe and then practice and don't be afraid to modify the recipe because Whoever wrote that recipe is not standing next to you in the kitchen and seeing what you're doing. So such great advice. It's okay
1: (laughs) to change it. I want to speak up as someone who doesn't have a rice cooker and say that I love a method where you boil the water separately and sort of like preheat the rice and a little bit of fat. And even and we'll link to the source of that recipe in our show notes. But um, even with that method, I find that I don't want to do that method in any other pot. And, like, it's one pot that I use for rice exclusively. I mean, I use it for other things, but, like, I won't cook rice if that pot's not not available Mm -hmm. to me. And also, like... Having moved houses a couple of times in the last couple of years, I find that when I move into a new kitchen or maybe I'm using a new brand of rice, I have to try like use that same method even a couple different times before I really nail down the like temperature that the stovetop needs to be on and also like sometimes have to adjust the timing based on the rice too. So it's it's really interesting how even with one type of rice, there's so much nuance to how you cook it.
4: And I, well, I've talked to restaurant chefs about this before, and I remember there was one who told me that when they get a new, you know, giant bag of rice delivered, they actually sometimes have to tweak it for each bag. Like the amount of water that worked before doesn't work anymore for the the new bag of rice. And it could be that it's a fresher bag. It could be an older bag. It could be a lot of other things. And so even restaurants are like constantly tweaking. So I don't think think people have to feel bad if they're kind of trying to figure the same thing out at home.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that about rice, how like bags and brands can vary because we so widely accept that with ingredients like flour. But I don't think we talk about it enough with rice and even other grains and pasta where it's like. It's going to vary a little bit on its age. It's going to vary a little bit on, like, what time of year it was grown and where it was grown. And those things, like, I don't want people to get overwhelmed. I don't want them, like, to drive them crazy. But sometimes it's not you as the home cook. Sometimes it's adjusting to the ingredient.
4: Totally. It's
1: not you. (laughs) <laughs>
0: That's the big takeaway, guys. It's
1: not you. It's not
0: us. It's the rice. We just have to be one with our rice. Just
1: keep on cooking on. Awesome. Christine, thank you so much for answering our rice questions. Of course. Stacy, you kind of know what I'm going to say next, right? I want to hear from our community. It would also be super rad if maybe you have you have a particular way you cook rice and you want to leave us a voicemail. So maybe we can make a follow-up episode for our listeners community about all the ways that you cook rice at home. We'll get so many differences, varied cultures, even on basic things like white rice. And I am here for that.
0: All right, guys, so you know how to find us at Didn't I Just Feed You on all social and visit our new site. There you can also join our new and improved community. All the details are at Didn't I Just Feed you.com. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter to get an exclusive recipe and our pick of the week every single week. You can subscribe at Didn't I Just Feed You or follow the link in our Instagram bio. And- Hey, don't
1: forget to subscribe to The Night Just Feed You wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Our music is Good Old Times by Alex Cohen, provided by Jim Endo. A huge thank you to our editor, Samantha Getzik, especially on this one, because I'm Megan.
2: <laughs> I'm
0: to sane, you guys. <laughs> stay sane and well-fed. Until next week.
2: Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.